Recovery Sort Of is a podcast where we discuss recovery and addiction topics from the perspective of people living in long-term recovery. This podcast does not intend to represent the views of any particular group, organization, or fellowship. The views expressed here are solely the opinion of its contributors. Be advised there may be strong language or topics of an adult nature. back it's the recovery sort of podcast i'm jason i'm a guy in long-term recovery and i'm billy i'm a guy in long-term recovery and today we're going to talk with aaron from voices of hope we're going to cover a topic of narcan which is a popular name it's got another name naloxone it's a drug used to help people recover from a drug overdose from a opioid overdose she does a lot of outreach and things for that and has a very interesting story on her experience with it, why it's useful to the community, why it's useful to society, and the benefits of Narcan being readily available. Awesome. It sounds fun. I, I'm just glad it's Narcan and not Narcant, because <laughs> that would not work. <laughs> <laughs> so, Saren will be with us and be a great conversation. All right, we're here with Erin. She is Chief Operations Officer of Voices of Hope. We'd like to start with a little bit of your story, how you got to where you are and your experience with Narcan. So I'm going to let you go. Good morning, everyone. I'm Erin. I am a person in long-term recovery, which means to me I haven't found a reason to use a mood or mind-altering substance since June of 2016. That surely wasn't always the case. I was born and raised in Cecil County. I wreaked havoc in Cecil County, and I also found recovery in Cecil County. I have two amazing children, uh, Unfortunately, both of my children saw me in active addiction, and it wasn't until, you know, I reached the end of my addiction that, you know, I found myself overdosed at a local park. You know, I was homeless living in my car at the time with my one-year-old daughter. I had already lost custody of my son. You know, a bystander called the paramedics who found me overdosed, unconscious, not breathing, with my daughter in the backseat, and uh, administered Narcan. So they got there just in time. Narcan enabled me to breathe, to seek treatment, seek help for my addiction. You know, really enabled me to have another chance at life. Without that life-saving medication and intervention, I would not be here to be able to talk with you fine people today. Well, that's really amazing. We're hearing a lot of overdose overdoses and the opioid epidemic sort of making its way back into the news right now with the advent of COVID and things going on with that. It kind of lost its luster to the media for a while, and now it, we're hearing a resurgence of overdoses, fatalities. 
those sorts of things. I know Voices of Hope and other organizations right now are doing a big push to try to get Narcan into communities, trying to do a lot of outreach for training and things to get it out there. So what exactly is Narcan? How is it used and what do we need it for? Yeah, so, I mean, you touched on a few things, you know, and it's really important that, you know, we're not hearing about the overdose fatalities as much because of COVID and the pandemic, and uh, that's kind of taking up the news in the election. And uh, But the people that are working on the front lines, you know, the hospitals, the law enforcement, Department of Emergency Services, community-based organizations like Voices of Hope, we're living it every day, you know, so we are on the front line, we see the effects um, right now. And, you know, the overdoses are doubled from this time last year, and they're only going up. And it's important. I think there's a lot of misleading education out there on the street about Narcan, and there's a lot of myths and uneducated people sometimes make assumptions, you know, and you hear a lot of things about Narcan. And, you know, one of the assumptions is pretty much that um, I hear it a lot. I don't know if you guys have heard it, but we're going to give everyone Narcan. Why don't we give diabetics <laughs> insulin? And I think it's just the miseducation. People don't really understand what Narcan is, what it's used for. So Narcan, it is not a treatment. Narcan is not a treatment for addiction. It's not a treatment for substance use disorder. It's not a treatment. All Narcan does is it's a life-saving medication that offers someone the ability to breathe again and ultimately, hopefully, to seek treatment. And one thing that I, I like to say all the time is, you know, someone who does not make it, who dies from this addiction or this disease, if they're dead, they never get a chance to try to seek treatment again. You know, I know personally, if I wasn't given the chance to breathe again, I would not be here with the amazing life that I have. Naloxone is really, it's just a, you know, it's a medication and how it works really. So in our brains, we have this receptor. It's an opiate receptor in our brains. And Narcan kind of acts as a blocker. So it will come and once it's administered, it sits on that receptor. And what it does is it does not allow the opiate that's like floating around and, you know, now it's floating around looking for the receptors. It blocks the receptor. So the opiate cannot sit on top of that receptor, right? Because of that, you know, and it enables if someone's already, you know, suffering from an opiate overdose, it, it knocks that opiate off of that receptor, and it comes and blocks it, which enables, in turn, enables us to breathe again. You know, the important thing with naloxone that, you know, again, miseducation, I don't even know, you know, a lot of people don't know that just because you administer naloxone, it knocks that opiate off, but it doesn't knock it out of your system. So that opiate is still, you know, up here in the clouds in your brain, and it's floating around because it's just looking for that receptor. So naloxone gives you a period of 30 to 90 minutes where it completely blocks that receptor. The problem is, you know, a lot of people, if we call 911 and, you know, they're like, oh, I'm fine now. I'm, I'm not unconscious and I'm breathing and I'm not blue anymore, then they refuse medical attention. And 
then what happens is they, they're uneducated and they do not understand that after 30 or 90 minutes, that Narcan wears off and that opiate, if it's strong enough and it's still in the system, it comes back and sits right on that receptor and you can go back into an overdose. So it's really important that, you know, individuals know what Narcan is, how it works, the effectiveness of it. And other things is that I, you know, Narcan is not, it will not hurt someone. So if you stumble upon someone, you know, at a gas station, and I think that everyone should have Narcan in their glove box. If, you know, someone didn't use it on me, I would not be here today. I've had to use it on complete strangers. And the thing is that it's not harmful. So if you are not sure because, you know, an overdose mimics uh, someone that may be having a heart attack, if you are not sure you can administer Narcan to someone having a heart attack and it is not going to have any effect. It's not going to harm them whatsoever. But if it's the chance that someone is suffering from an overdose, it will enable them to breathe again and have another chance at finding treatment. You know, and if it's someone that may be pregnant, it's not harmful. I could actually administer it to both of you right now. And all you're going to be like is that tastes really nasty. It's not going to have any effect on you and not going to hurt you. It's not going to harm, harm you. The only effects is if we're, we have opiates in our system, it's going to knock that opiate off of that receptor and allow you to breathe again. Well, yeah, it's going to do something. So if you stumble across somebody that's having a heart attack and you administer Narcan, they now can't get high. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know. So True that. <laughs> and I will tell you from experience that individuals that are coming out of an overdose, if you give them Narcan, they are pissed. <laughs> when they wake up, they are pissed because you just messed up their, their high and they are not very happy because it immediately knocks that off of that receptor. Good point. Gotcha. So what are the most common ways or what's the most common way that Narcan is administered? So the most common way, the safest and what people are more comfortable with is the nasal Narcan. So if anyone's ever had migraines and has had to use Imitrex or, you know, the little nasal spray, it's as easy to use as that. It looks exactly like that. You would not know. That's the most common way. There's also uh, intermuscular Narcan, which I don't know if anyone's familiar with like steroids and the big, the big syringes, the big thick needle. Um, so that's another way to administer Narcan. Of course, if it's someone who does not actively use drugs and is not okay with syringes, I would, it, you know, we only, we don't give that to, you know, the mom that's coming in looking for uh, Narcan. So mainly the nasal. The nasal. And I guess, so nowadays there's a lot of efforts, I guess, through community health departments, through organizations like yours, through different places to get, I guess, training or access to Narcan. Like, how do you, how do you get it or how would you go about finding it? Yeah. So in every, I mean, in every county, I know in Maryland, the health departments and community-based organizations, they're called overdose response programs, which means we have the ability to um, distribute naloxone, there's different training. So like there's hour long training, so you can become a trainer. So you can go out on the streets and train. We have outreach, backpack outreach, where we give people 
in two minutes or less the training on how to use it. And really, you know, the requirements to be able to distribute it is pretty simple. It's like, you know, we have to teach individuals what are the signs of an opiate overdose real quick. And then what do you do in case you stumble upon someone and you want to administer Narcan? So it's pretty easy. You can go into a pharmacy. There's standing orders at pharmacies now. You can, and a lot of people don't know that. You can walk into a pharmacy and you can ask, you know, I, I want a dose of Narcan. You do not need a prescription. A standing order means the general surgeon wrote a standing order for this prescription at the pharmacies. So they don't need a prescription from individuals. You can walk in and say, I want to get Narcan. The problem with that is there's so much stigma related to walking into a public pharmacy and saying, whether you're the person using drugs or whether you're the mother, to walk in and say, hey, can you give me some Narcan? There's so much stigma attached to it. So that's why, you know, especially Voices of Hope, we try to offer it with as little barriers as possible to the public to kind of you know, it's more comfortable coming to an organization like ours or a health department and saying, I need Naloc or Narcan. So Is that across the US that you can walk so into a pharmacy? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> every yeah, every uh state is different. So it depends on what state, Maryland, we do across the board. You can walk into a pharmacy. Now there are some pharmacists that you walk into the pharmacy and they're gonna give you a hard time. Hmm. But that's why it's important for people to be educated because you know, if you walk into a pharmacy and say, I want Narcan, the pharmacist, they have, you know, a lot of them have stigma related to it, too. So mm-hmm. they'll be like, no, we don't have it. Or where's your prescription? But if you can throw out there, well, in Maryland, there is a standing. I do know that there's a standing uh, order. They have to give it to you or they can tell you they don't have any. And you gotcha. go to another pharmacy because it happens. Why would the Surgeon General make that a standing order? Like, what's the importance of that I right mean, now? The importance is it's saving lives. We are in the middle of an opiate epidemic. People are dying. People are dying every day. And, you know, we can put as many treatment facilities up. We can put as many health departments out there. We can put as many people out there trying to get people into treatment. But if people are not breathing because they die, they don't have a chance for accessing all these treatment and wonderful programs out there. And... It's a life-saving medication, and every single person has the right to breathe and another chance at life. Gotcha. And just, I don't know if we said this specifically, but Narcan or or Naloxone, Narcan is the brand name. Naloxone is the actual drug, I think. It's specifically for opioid overdoses. It really only helps helps with opioid overdoses. It doesn't help with overdoses of other kinds. Yeah, so it is. It's just opiates. So it's opioids and, um, you know, fentanyl is big. Everyone hears about fentanyl. That is an opiate. So any kind of opiates, it does help. Now, what's common out there is, at least in Cecil County, is methamphetamine is on the rise. Stimulant use is on the rise. And fentanyl is very cheap. It comes from China. (laughs) (laughs) It's very cheap. And... You know, people are cutting their methamphetamine and drug suppliers are out there cutting their uh, cocaine with fentanyl. So what we've seen a lot is, you know, I'll respond to someone that is an overdose survivor. I'll go knock on their door and then they're like, 
I've never done opiates in my life. Um, I don't know how I got on your list. And I'm like, well, you know, emergency services came out and they gave you Narcan and it brought you back. And, and then it's the education piece. It's like I sit there and I tell them, I'm like, well, you need to be careful because, you know, methamphetamine and cocaine right now are being laced with the fentanyl. So, yeah, some people are shocked because they have no clue. Yeah. So I guess in finding fentanyl and all these other drugs, then even people that aren't consistently opioid users or heroin users still might find a reason to keep some Narcan around. Absolutely. Because they don't know. You don't know what's in your drugs. And individuals that are the, you know, stimulant users, they're not looking for a high that is they don't want to be down you know they're looking to get up they're looking for a stimulant they don't want the effect of an opiate it's just the matter of fact that's what's in the drugs right now so having narcan on them you know or at least in their vicinity is saving lives in that aspect too people need to better check the nutrition labels like you know <laughs> this cocaine's got two grams of protein three three percent of my vitamin a oh shit look there's fentanyl in it too i i probably should have narcan if i'm going to use this one they usually have a serving size on there too right. so they, if they followed the serving size they probably wouldn't get themselves in so much trouble right and people are using so people are using fentanyl test strips a lot now as like a harm reduction tip they're having narcan and they're having fentanyl test strips people that use stimulants because you know mm. it, it wow Let's them follow that serving size a little better. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, if they test their drugs or their their stimulants, they're like, oh, okay, I'm going to be a little safer because there's something in here I don't like. And So just to, and I don't, you mentioned the whole Narcan is not a treatment for opioid use and how people relate that in their equation to we don't pay for people's insulin. Why should we pay for Narcan? Are they making that relationship just because it's like the closest thing they can think of or why do they make that association you know i have no idea i think it's because you know there's a lot of stigma with it and there's a lot of people out there mad that they're and i guess it's the miseducation that they think narcan's free (laughs) because narcan's not free you know these drug companies are not making narcan for free and handing it out that's not that's not what is going on. They're getting paid really good money <laughs> for their Narcan that they're making. What's happening is it looks like it's free, mm. but Maryland Department of Health is purchasing the Narcan from the drug company to get it out there on the street because we're in the middle of an epidemic and people are dropping like flies because of this. And this is the only intervention that is working enough to get people to treatment. It does not treat it. It is, if you're not breathing, you can't go to treatment. Diabetes, if a paramedic shows up and someone is in a diabetic coma, they're going to use all of their life-saving techniques or, you know, whatever interventions they have to do what? Enable that person to breathe again. But that person might not be taking their insulin at home. They might have their insulin, right? Right. They're just stubborn. Or they don't want to do it. They're not taking care of their health, right? So they're still eating, you know, that big bag of Reese's at night while they're laying in bed. Then they're not taking their insulin. But we're not out there, you know, yelling at people that aren't taking care of their diabetes. 
I mean, for one, I totally agree with their statement, honestly, because, yeah, why is there insulin not free? Sure, we should have free treatments for everything, personally, right? right? Like, I don't think, I think they're saying it backwards, honestly. It's not, why should we give away Narcan? It's, why the hell isn't my insulin also free? Right. But I think the second point is it's a super interesting analogy or comparison because, yeah, okay, so we have this type 1 diabetes that goes around that's genetic and there's nothing you can do about, but a lot of people have the type 2 version now, which is also considered, I mean, they're, they're probably the same people pointing the fingers like, well, why can't these, these addicts are doing it to themselves? And it's like, uh, type 2 diabetes <laughs> is a not all, but a lot of that is done to yourself as well. So that's a really weird comparison to make. Yeah, and if you look at insulin, insulin is a treatment. Right. Insulin is the treatment for your diabetes. Whether you self-cause the diabetes, whether it was genetic, insulin is the treatment. Now, when you're not taking care of your health and go into a diabetic coma, the life-saving medications, all all of that, you're going to get that whether you can pay for it or not. That is given to everyone. They're not checking your insurance first and making sure... So the life-saving to enable you to breathe again, to maybe hopefully next time you change your habits and you do your treatment like prescribed. And, you know, from having a background in managing doctor's offices, I do know that there are drug companies out there that do offer free insulin for people that really can't afford the insulin. Mm. You know, so Narcan's the same thing. Someone shows up on scene, you are not breathing, Let's save your life so you can change your habits so you can go to treatment, which, you know, whatever your treatment might be. So it's the same thing with diabetics. Paramedics show up. They save your life. So hopefully you're going to change your ways if you have the ability to do that or at least partake in your treatment and give yourself your insulin every day. Just my personal opinion. (laughs) So you kind of mentioned like a a follow-up after someone has an overdose, and I think that's somewhat unique to Cecil County. So I guess I'm going to circle back to that for a minute. If someone was in a situation where they were overdosed, like in a whatever, someone found them, like in your case, in a park or something, they were brought back with Narcan, I assume maybe by medical professionals, or even if it was another individual, how do they then get access to treatment? Like, it's great. Now we got them alive. What are the next steps or what is the process for trying to get people access to treatment or what normally happens after they're brought back? Well, we all know that treatment doesn't work unless you want it to work. So, Mm. you know, there is no, okay, show up on the scene, you overdose, let's go right now to treatment. Unfortunately, especially when you're over the age of 18, treatment is optional. Concerned family members, community members cannot make anyone go to treatment. But there are tools out there. You know, there's peer recovery specialists, which is pretty much just people like me with lived experience. I know in Cecil County, so Cecil County is kind of unique. We have this great program in Cecil County that it's over to survivor outreach. So basically, anytime an ambulance or a first responder is called out for an overdose, we get all that information. Hmm. And we send people like myself who have lived experience to knock on people's doors, not call them first because, you know, they either don't answer a phone or they hang up on you if you even want to try to talk about it. But the power in someone else that has lived experience and showing up at the door, you know, I can show up at young lady's door that had a recent overdose and I can just kind of use some empathy and be like, you know, I'm Aaron. I'm a person in long-term recovery. I'm a survivor of an overdose. Just kind of 
build a relationship and help bridge the gap. And, and there is a ton of treatment out there. And you have people like peers, uh, there's counselors, people that can connect people to treatment options. But it's really up to the individual. But when they're ready, there there is treatment out there. There is so when it comes to treatment, some people are like, well, I can't go to treatment, you know, because of this or that. There, there's so many different treatment options that just someone with some lived experience can talk them through and help them with their options. All right. So if you're, say, a family member, a parent, a spouse of someone and you bring them back from an overdose, like what? should you do? Like once you Narcan them and they come back, they're fine. Should they go get some sort of health check or, you know, obviously we want them to get into treatment, but what do you do when you bring someone back? (laughs) It's hard, right? Because it's a case by case basis, man. And, you know, there's so much stigma attached to overdosing. So, you know, there's been instances where people overdose, they have their children in their house, in my case, because it was at a local park, I didn't have a say in the matter. Mm. The police showed up and they're the ones that Narcan me. And, you know, they took my daughter. You know, when it happens in our own home, a lot of people, they're faced with, with that. If I have my children in my house and I just overdose and the police show up. So the education piece around it. It is important for people to know that you can go back into an overdose in 30 to 90 minutes. So... If you choose to stay at home and not call 911, because it is very traumatizing on people sometimes, you know, you you make sure that you're with other people. Other people have more Narcan with them in case you go into another overdose. But really know all the options out there. There are organizations that can talk to families, like you can bring your loved one in and just talk to people with lived experience and see if they want treatment, see what kind of treatment options are out there. But it's really important to know, I mean, we're all faced with the stigma. Even once you're in recovery, you're still faced with the stigma of what we used to be. That never leaves. You know, as a person with put together a couple years in recovery, the stigma still follows me. So, I guess for me, that covers sort of the more uh, practical questions that I had. I think we're going to take our break for our voices ad, and then I want to come back and get more, I guess, a little bit into the what I'll call the emotional arguments of it. Um, One, you know, what happened with you and your kids and social services and all that after your overdose. Two, I mean, why do we bother bringing back people that are addicts that are killing themselves? They're a lot of attitudes of their burden on our society and things like that. So after a break, I want to come back and talk a little bit about that and get into some more emotional conversation. This episode has been brought to you by Voices of Hope, Inc., a nonprofit grassroots recovery community organization located in Maryland. Voices of Hope is made up of people in recovery, family members, and allies. Together, members strive to protect the dignity and respect of those that use drugs and those in recovery by advocating for treatment, support resources, and mentoring. Please visit us at www.voicesofhopececilmd.org and consider donating to our cause. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right, we're back. So I guess now I feel like we've talked about a lot of the practical aspects of Narcan or Naloxone, wanting to get more a little bit of the emotional conversation around it. One, you know, it is an expense, I guess, to taxpayers or to citizens. Secondly, there's a lot of stigma around addiction and why bother saving addicts and things like that. So you shared a little bit in your story about cops having to bring you back and your daughter being in the car. So for you personally, like what transpired after that? Did social services get involved? There are criminal actions that come with that sort of thing? Yes, those are all good questions. Because the cops were called and my daughter was in the backseat, they did escort me to the hospital and took my daughter to social services. I was lucky because I was able to call because I was deep in addiction. You know, my family wrote me off, wanted nothing to do with me. That's why I was living in my car. I felt like I had no one, but I was able to call, you know, this lady that had watched my daughter since she was born. She was our babysitter and she was able to go to social services and pick up my daughter had to have a safety plan in place and which said that, you know, when she picked her up, she had to sign papers that she wouldn't let her see me until we went through, you know, some steps. That's the fear that people, that's what kept me living in my car for so long. Mm. And that's what kept me from asking for help because I knew that if I walked into a state agency or if I went to social services and said, I have a drug problem and I live in my car and I inject heroin and my daughter lives in my car with me that they would have took her away. I think that's what different circumstances make people wait so long to access treatment. And that was my personal one as I was scared to death. That was the only thing that time in my life, the only thing that kept me going every single day and kept me pushing was my daughter And, you know, just the thought of losing her kept me from accessing treatment. Hmm. You know, it kept me. I had no family. I couldn't go to, I felt like, I felt like I couldn't go to inpatient treatment, which I needed so badly because I had no one to keep my daughter for 28 days. Right. I had no one, you know, and it's hard for some people to grasp why we do the things we do, but I had no one that I could drop my daughter off and when I was done, get into a recovery house and get my daughter, pick my daughter back up after treatment. It's a lot of my past because that's how I lost my son was I let my family have my son so I could go access treatment. When I came back, they filed emergency petition against me so that I abandoned him and took him. Mm. Uh, which led me deeper into my addiction because my family, I felt like, turned their back on me and took my son away from me. And now here I am with no purpose. And I asked because we had been through a similar situation with a family member of mine who had overdosed and was brought back with Narcan and had two kids. And then same thing. It's like, okay, what do we do next? And that was the fear that if we go seek out treatment for this person, are they going to try to take her kids? What's going to happen with the social services part? And and that deterred 
her from going to access treatment. I mean, and the only in that conversation with her about what to do, like that was something that really needed to be talked about. Like, yeah, if we go to access treatment through the health department or go to access treatment, she didn't have private insurance to go through treatment. It would have been accessed through the health department is then you're going to get involved in the system, so to speak. And and that's scary. It's a hard place to navigate for a lot of it is, it is, especially people with no support, man. You know, a lot of us burn a lot of bridges in our active addiction, whether it's family, whether it's in our community, when you take an individual and, you know, the only thing that they may be holding on to and some people that don't have kids, right? It's the same for them. Some people that don't have kids, they can't even wrap their mind. They, they've burned every bridge in their life. They can't wrap their mind around getting clean and having no support. If we're so used to what we're doing and the life that we're living, people who are in addiction, they believe it or not, when we're out there, we take care of each other. We might not be sharing our drugs <laughs> with each other, right. but we look out for each other. And that's where like harm reduction period was was founded is drug users keeping each other safe. You know, so there's there's individuals, it's not even the children aspect, which is huge, but there's individuals that are so used to living a certain way in a community with other people who are living the same way. And that feels like support to them. That feels like the only support. And then you want to take someone, you know, it's scary to make that that change and then go to treatment because what do they tell us once we go to treatment? change your people, places, and things, right? right? And that is freaking scary for someone who's burned all their bridges in their family and in their community. They found this new family, per se, and other people who are living and doing the same things that they're doing, right? And you now you want me to remove me from that? That's a lot of people's downfalls, too. We'll go, we'll go access that treatment, but when we get out, we're like, we want to go back to the people that supported us but they're doing the things we used to be doing. So it, it, it's kind of like a vicious cycle. You know, if you don't change that aspect, then we're going to end up doing the same things because that's the love that we felt that from those people that we used to surround ourselves with, that's where we feel like we fit in. So it's hard. There's a lot of barriers in place. And like I said, you know, for me, once, you know, my daughter was involved in social services. I'm not even going to talk about social services, <laughs> especially in Cecil County. I was fortunate because after my babysitter picked up my daughter, signed that piece of paper, we were supposed to go to court and all this other stuff. Social services never checked up on my daughter one time. Hmm. Never checked up on her at the babysitter's house. Never checked up on me. Never reached out to me. So I say that I'm fortunate in the fact that I was able to get my life somewhat back together and get my daughter back without having to go through the system because they were so overwhelmed. They just forgot about my beautiful little blue eyed, blonde haired little girl, which I'm very fortunate for in another case that's very personal to my heart that social services was involved in. It took us three years of fighting the system with me and my significant other in recovery, owning a house, owning cars, working at places for years on end. But because we had a history, just a history of substance use, our history and the stigma with that, we fought for three years to get my partner's son 
that he didn't know existed out of the system once we found out he was his. So the system is broke. It's supposed to unite families. It's supposed to keep families together, and it is not built for that, at least in Cecil County, to keep. And that's the word on the street. (laughs) So that's, that's me talking from experience, but that's the word on the street. So someone that, that's why we give them Narcan, man, save each other's life. We educate them. We tell them, you know, look, and I'll be completely honest. I tell people don't call the ambulance flat out. I educate them. And I'm like, look. Make sure you're not alone for the next couple hours. Don't use again. And keep Narcan beside you because that is the fear. They're going to lose their children. They're going to have to fight. And if they're anything like I did with my son, I gave up. You know, I didn't fight. And I was with my family. I could not imagine. I, I We just fought three years in recovery for a child. I could not imagine having to fight a system when I was still using yeah, scary. And there's a couple things in what you said that I want to touch on. So I want to try to break it down piece by piece. First was, you know, we talk about this, I guess it's a newer, I'll say newer concept of harm reduction. It's a term we hear kind of thrown around now. It encompasses a lot of different aspects of treatment or, or maybe not even treatment to addiction, but ways to deal with addiction in our communities. Harm reduction, I guess in general, my understanding is it's really just keeping people alive and helping them try to improve their condition to the next step. So if you have, you know, people that are homeless, you know, shooting drugs out on the street, maybe we get them into a a maintenance program. Maybe we get them into some sort of recovery treatment, halfway housing, whatever we got to do to kind of keep them alive to, to try to get their life to the next step until their, you know, sort of condition improves, I guess. So with harm reduction, like, why is there such a big push for harm reduction now? Uh, that Obviously, in this political climate, there's a segment of the population that feels like addicts are just a burden on society, that they're not worth treatment or saving, and that the best thing we can do is lock them up and let them die and whatever else. And it's, sometimes it's easy as a person who is a someone in recovery who's personally connected with people that have overdosed and died or all those things. It's easy to say, well, they're people they deserve to live. But I think it's helpful sometimes to kind of look at some of those perspectives and try to see how we can bring people to a more compassionate understanding, <laughs> you know, a more compassionate understanding of addiction and the struggles that people go through. So what are some of the, I guess, benefits of harm reduction besides just the compassionate piece? Again, it's always who I'm talking to, how I have to relate harm reduction. And a lot of people don't understand harm reduction. And they think right off the bat is, oh, you're just enabling people, harm reduction. A lot of people tie harm reduction with, oh, you just give out needles. But it's so much bigger than that. And the relatability factor. So what I always say, and I try to tell people that really... I can gauge if they understand. And a lot of them, first couple minutes, I'm like, okay, you have no idea what harm reduction is. So it's football season, right? Everyone knows it's football season on Sunday. We're all watching the football game. You have these people out there. They're partaking in high-risk behaviors. And behind the scenes, the doctors are telling them, if you keep up these high-risk behaviors, getting your head hit game after game after tackle after tackle... You're going to shave 20 years off your life expectancy, right? And as a society, we're sitting on Sunday, egging them on. 
They're getting paid millions of dollars. We're shoving more money at them to keep engaging in these high-risk activities, even though it's going to shave 20 years off their life expectancy. But what we're doing, we have all these fancy helmet makers coming up with the best helmets to try to help them to protect their head, to protect their brain from brain injury, coming up with these back braces and pads so they don't, you know, have a back injury. Dak Prescott should have had an ankle brace on <laughs> last week. For those outside the U.S., this is American football. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so that's what we do as a society. We sit back, we egg them on, and we want them to do it, even though they know. Every football player out there knows that I'm going to keep doing this year after year, tackle after tackle. and I'm going to lose at least 20 years off my life expectancy from these high-risk behaviors. That's what harm reduction is in people who use drugs. They're engaging in high-risk behaviors. They're going to do it. These football players are going to do it, whether we tell them to stop or not. The doctors tell them to stop, but they're still going to do it. People who use drugs, we are not giving them the drugs. (laughs) They're going to still do their drugs. All we're doing is giving them the tools to do it safely. That way, you know, they're not contracting HIV or hep C. That way, the Narcan is enabling them to breathe, to access treatment when and if they're ready, because everyone deserves a second chance. That way, they're not getting admitted to the hospital time and time again and using our tax. I'm a taxpayer now. I was not always a taxpayer, (laughs) let me tell you, but I am now. And guess what? Someone that gets admitted to the hospital because you know, they're high risk behaviors and we're not giving them harm reduction tips and education around it. They're costing us about $17,000 to be admitted to the hospital for three days. That doesn't include the person that's out there getting, you know, endocarditis and is in the hospital for weeks on end because of their high risk behaviors because they didn't have the proper tools. That cost, that cost up to $80,000, $80,000 taxpayer dollars. Because, um, you know, they may not have insurance. So harm reduction, it's just, I want you to be safe. I want you to be well, right? Because if you're not breathing, you have no chance at recovery. Harm reduction is also, you know, if you do choose recovery, do you know how harmful it is for someone to come in and be early in recovery and find out that they have HIV or hep C? But if we didn't give them Narcan to begin with, they wouldn't have that chance at recovery. If we didn't give them other harm reduction tools, they wouldn't have that chance to come in recovery and start their life over. I think harm reduction's got almost a twofold sales pitch, right? Like in kind of like how Aaron was saying, if you if you talk to addicts, we're going to say, hey, man, this saves lives. This is your buddies, your son, your daughter, your parent, whoever. Like this is people we care about and we want to help them, right? But when we're talking about the taxpayer who maybe doesn't have such a high view of people dealing with substance abuse and just thinks it's their problem. It's the cost effectiveness, right? All the things Aaron said, you don't have to get these children involved in any social services kind of matters and take care of them through taxpayer money, which we know generally isn't producing great children anyway, at the end of that, like they're having rough traumatized existence without their parents. And so then a whole nother generation is costing our taxpayer money. So you, you almost have to sell it to whoever you're you're giving it to, but it, it's cheaper. I mean, we, we know this. We can say, why do we want to spend this money on harm reduction? But it's less money than we're spending on prisons and taking care of people's kids. Like, it's it's just cheaper. There's no other way around it. Right. So it's the idea you can spend less money on the front end through treatment, harm reduction, 
you know, access to care than on the back end when you're trying to deal with the aftermath or consequences of addiction and using constantly. I'm actually bitter about the cheapness of what you said those hospital stays were. I just had a retreatment on a root canal for one tooth and it was $18,000. So I'm like, damn, I could have been in the hospital for three days? That (laughs) sounds way better. (laughs) Could you imagine if we didn't have Narcan out in the street and so readily available? Mm. What an opiate overdose is like, you know, suppresses your respiratory system so it shuts off the oxygen through your blood to your brain. By the time the paramedics could get there, if we didn't have Narcan out there on the street to enable you to breathe again. And could you imagine the overburden on the healthcare system of people that may end up in a coma because they didn't have this medication to them quick enough? And, you know, we had a conversation the other day with our local Department of Emergency Services, and they wanted to thank us. They were always against us in the beginning. Not against us, but like, I don't know why you're, you know, kind of the stigma related to it. Why are you out there handing all that out and you're just enabling them? And they actually thanked us the other day Hmm. because they've seen, you know, especially with COVID, they've seen such a dramatic increase in fatal overdoses. They said, you know, because we can hand out up to like 800 doses a month in Cecil County. And they said, you know. If you weren't handing that out, I can't imagine how many calls we would get. And they thanked us. And that was the first time they've ever thanked us. You know, they're starting to see, you know, the effects of it. Just with that alone, they're like, if we were called to every single overdose out there because this medication wasn't out there, it's like we couldn't handle it. Couldn't handle it. Well, I I think we take for granted, too, that in this community, I mean, we're a small rural county, really, for the most part. But in this community, it seems, at least through my experience, that we're we're kind of flooded with the ability to give out large amounts of Narcan to people. And it's widely available. Like, that is not my experience from Baltimore. And I know Baltimore, you would think, oh, it's a big city. It's more liberal. (laughs) Lots of drug addiction. That's everywhere. And I think it's almost because this community is a little smaller and tighter, it's easier to disperse it to the right places. And in Baltimore, it's kind of so widespread and everywhere. It's not like this there. And I can only imagine in even smaller towns or or maybe not even towns at all where it's just farms or something like people aren't really going to have a community center to get this at. So I I think we're lucky in this little area. I highly doubt it's as widely available everywhere else that people are listening. So... What is, I guess, the, well, it's obvious to say what the target audience is for Narcan, but how do we identify or get it to those communities or how do people that are in those communities find how to get Narcan? I guess, like you said, go to the health department, go to training at places through voices. But in the state, is there anything throughout the rest of the state or throughout the country that has programs going on that you know of? So they do have, especially with COVID, they've started like mail order naloxone, Narcan. Yeah, it's called Next Naloxone. You can Google it. And it's very easy to access. And you fill out a form. It's confidential. That's if you can wait for it to be mailed to you. Um, you know, you fill out a form. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, it's just funny to picture Don't someone in an online, overdose right. and they're like trying to mail <laughs> it. Yeah, it doesn't work. It's like not a stork doesn't come down and or I think a drone. we got the same vision at the same time. <laughs> 
<laughs> but if you used yours and then you're like, you know, I might need this need in the future. Yeah, you could you get it mail ordered directly to your house, which is fabulous, especially for family members that are like, I don't want to walk into an organization. They might know. We know addiction touches every family, whether you're a judge, whether you're a politician. In those aspects, someone that can just sit behind their computer and confidentially order it is great. And, you know, something unique that we do here, we go out to the community. We go out in that neighborhood that we know people are overdosing in because we get those reports. And our people walk around with book bags filled with Narcan and we hand them out. Not only do people that use drugs, but there's like mom and pops of the neighborhoods Mm -hmm. that save their neighbor's life so we give it to everyone so it you know this is just in the past couple years because when i was still out there on the streets in cecil county i did not know about narcan because it wasn't here yet um so you know with the big push on at least in maryland to have it easily accessible that's just been in the past couple years baltimore i know that now it's very easily accessible. There are people that walk around Baltimore and hand out Narcan as well. So it's like a big push in the state of Maryland. Every state is different. What are we Googling to get mail order? Is it next? Next Naloxone. Next Naloxone. Yep. So I want to call out Amazon and Jeff Bezos. And since he makes all this shit ton of money, he should coordinate with next Naloxone and be able to deliver it same day as part of his giving back to society. Just yeah. a thought. <laughs> there you go. So to to kind of wrap up, I guess, close out your story. So where are you at now and, and your kids and your recovery and your life and how Narcan has sort of benefited? And I'm going to be a little lead in here. So I'll say, how has this come out as what I see as like a net positive for our community now? Like you're a person that was saved with Narcan. You're now a taxpayer. You know, you have your kids back. Now you're an example of one of the reasons why this is important. I actually, every year on my anniversary, I'm coming up on five years, I always reach back out to the officer Mm. that gave me the Narcan that day, and I always thank him. I thank him for not looking at me like another, just another person that uses drugs, for not judging me, and, you know, I always tell him, you know, what I've achieved this past year. And that without him giving me that Narcan and giving me a chance to breathe again, that I would not be here today. You know, I I hope that he takes that with him in his journey in law enforcement and with other people. Because, you know, there's so much stigma attached to it. And like, we're just enabling people. And, you know, it breaks my heart when I hear that. Because I was just one of those people. I'll always be one of those people. I was that person that lived in my car that used drugs in front of my daughter. Sorry, I want to be yeah. like, yes, we're enabling people. We're enabling them to fucking breathe, yes. asshole. Like, <laughs> right? Sometimes I get a little annoyed yeah. by that. Yeah. Because that's all it was for me. It was, he gave me a chance to be alive, to still live. It's up to me and every single person that we use Narcan on, it's up to that person what they're going to do with that second, third, tenth chance. But if we don't keep giving them the chance, then they don't have a chance to change. I was given that chance and I changed. There are people that are given the chance 30 times and that 30th first time is when they change. If we're just buried six feet under 
you know, our families mourn us. We're just another tally on the death toll, fatal overdoses. And I sit on this local recover or fatality recovery board every month, and it breaks my heart that it's just a name. That's what happens to you after hmm. you're not breathing. You become a name. And around we sit around a table, and all these organizations talk about this person and how we could have helped them. That's what Narcan is. It gives us a chance to not be just a name that everyone's talking about. Well, they had this in their system and this in their system, and they were on probation, and they did do this. So everyone deserves a chance, whether it's the first or 30th chance, you deserve a chance to still live. How we live and what we do with that chance is up to us. I changed my life. I got my daughter back. Five years later, I am a chief operations officer of an organization. Well, chief operations officer, that's pretty, that's like, whoa, you know, (laughs) did you look at my background before you (laughs) offered me that position? But anyway, (laughs) but I'm with an organization that gives back to the community every day that puts out their doses and doses and doses of narcan to help enable people to to breathe so they have the opportunity to change i teach people all around the state trainings and classes on how to help that person that once we give them the chance to breathe with the the it's so much more than that once we give them the chance to breathe again Then we can give them the chance to change and how to help people change and help them through that change. Give back to my community in that way to help help our community be better, have more people out there that are trained to save a life. I own a house. I don't know how that ever happened, but I own a house. I own vehicles that are legal today. (laughs) I pay my taxes today. And we have this amazing, blended, huge family. I have my son back today. I gave that up a long time ago because I was given a chance to breathe. I was given a chance to fight, fight for what was mine, fight more for my son. My son lives with me. We have everything from a three-year-old to an 18-year-old in the <laughs> same house. And, uh, yeah, but guess what? You know, I provide for them. Their needs are met. And I never have to be that person again. My children never have to see me use again. And that's a choice that I make every single day when I wake up. And the only reason I am able to wake up every day and make that choice is because that cop had Narcan Hmm. and he gave me Narcan and gave me a chance to breathe. Yeah. And so we see that, you know, a lot in recovery, that ripple effect. It's like now that that you've been kept alive with Narcan and been able to find recovery that ripples out into your family and immediately, you know, has an impact on your kids and them not getting turned over to someone else or not having their parents. But also, I just know that you've had the opportunity to use Narcan on people. I don't know opportunity is the right word. It's not like something you would look forward to, but you've had occasion to do that and how that's kind of impacted you or how that's felt to be involved in bringing someone back from an overdose. That was, it was very traumatic. You know, it was very hard because in that moment, when I was put in that moment to actually, you know, we train for it and we prepare for it. And we're like, I can go around the state and train people how to use it. But when you have to use it yourself on someone, that person in front of me, you know, he was not breathing. He was blue. Mm. And the entire time, I just looked at myself. When I looked at that man, I just saw myself. I saw myself laying there on that ground. I had to give him I had to give him Narcan. 
he came back from it. Um, and what he does from here is up to him. But I gave him the chance to do something. And um, hopefully he does something. Yeah, well, that's incredible. That's about all I had. Did you have anything you wanted to add or questions? Nope, that was beautiful. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming in to share your story with us, Aaron. Uh, it's amazing in all that you do to help other addicts out there that are still suffering. And with the training on Narcan and the things that we do in harm reduction, I think it's beneficial. Like say, hopefully people take away that it's it's a benefit to our community to try to keep addicts alive, to get them access to treatment, to administer whatever means of harm reduction we can hopefully because we're compassionate people and we care about other people but if you're not such a compassionate person it saves you in your tax dollars anyway it's beneficial on that end as well so thank you again for listening to the podcast um if you could please try to like rate review us on your local podcast apps uh that helps get us more attention and notoriety gets us out there a little more and we'll see you next week if you enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to share it with people you think might benefit from the conversation. Look us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to join the conversation also and share your ideas with us. We'd love to hear it.